What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 39 of the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have led with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Mike, and it's an honor to be on this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. You know, a little over a year ago when we began this podcast, we had a dream, and the dream was to help people be the best spiritual leaders they could be. I had a list of about five or six people that I couldn't wait to get in touch with. And then I was like, gosh, who else am I going to get? And it's been amazing over the course of now 39 episodes, how many incredible leaders we've been able to sit down with literally from all walks of life. Today's leader is one of those people that sort of is a, is a hybrid of a lot of the different folks that we've talked to. Her name is Dondi Skumachi. Dondi is a world-class leader, international speaker, known for her high-energy presentations, her keynotes and her workshops. She's authored three incredible books, her best-selling book, Design for Success, The Ten Commandments for Women in the Workplace, and her last one, Ready, Set, Grow. She expands on the mentoring theme that she is so known for. She's known in many circles as the female John Maxwell because she is a leader of leaders. Today is a day you want a notebook out. Today is a day you want to take out a pen or a pencil and really, really jot down some of the thoughts that Dondi has to share. So I want you to pull up a chair and I want you to listen in to my time with Dondi Scamacci. Dondi, thank you so much for joining me today on Lynch with a Leader. It is an honor to have you. It's really good to meet you. Thank you for having me. Well, you are, you are so welcome. I have looked forward to this so, so much. L- listening to you, reading your stuff, you are a fascinating leader because you you come at it from so many different angles. But I want to go back. I want to go back to growing up in the Pacific Northwest, up in Oregon, you came from a family of ranchers that they wanted to, and farmers, and they wanted to give you an opportunity to go to the big city, but your heart was really sort of back on that farm and ranch, wasn't it? Always. So I grew up in Baker City, Oregon, and my family had uh, all grown up in the smaller rural areas, uh, you know, on farms and ranches and uh, you know, horse trainers and all that. But we, you know, Baker City is not a big city, but, you know, my parents brought us into town. And so we were going to, you know, we, we weren't going to be mucking the stalls and, you know, we weren't going to be doing the cow thing. And I will tell you, growing up, I always, my heart was always back on the farm and I couldn't wait to go there. I couldn't wait to get back to the farm. That is so funny. And it was funny reading too, you know, you're growing up and then your grandfather moves in with you, which is not, abnormal for a grandfather to move in, but your grandfather had lost his vision, I believe in a mining accident, correct? Right. And you, and it was really interesting. It said you became his eyes. Talk Mm -hmm. to me a little bit about now that you look back on that, probably at that time, you're like, well, I'm just being a good granddaughter to helping my granddad around. What did God use that time for in your life as you work with your grandfather? You know, that is my first mentoring story. He was my first proper mentor, I guess. You know, he, he was completely sightless. Uh, he was this big, tall Irishman. He, he seemed like a giant to me. I did move in with us, and uh, he, he became my babysitter. <laughs> so when you think about it, he's blind. I'm five. <laughs> it was awesome. But we, we became best friends. We, you know, we would play all kinds of of wonderful games, like he would teach me all the states and the capitals and all the presidents, and I could recite those, and I would read to him. So I was reading things way above my pay grade at that time, you know, because he was interested in agriculture, and he was, you know, the conservation man of the year. And, you know, this is a man who did Roman writing. He was in the Calvary. He was, you know, he was a cowboy, but we would walk. We would go for a walk. So other kids walked their dogs. I walked my pops. 
And I, I learned, you know, later on when I would talk to people about mentoring, I would ask them, you know, tell me a time in your life when a mentor, you discovered something through mentoring. What is the greatest lesson? And as people would share these stories, I realized I have a wonderful story too. Sorry about that. That is not a big deal. I've got one at home. That's why I'm at the office. So you're good. You're totally mm. good. So pick it up from there. Yep, you're so perfect. So we would we would be we would walk the we would walk together, and I learned three things from from this experience. I learned that you can have vision for someone else even when you're small, mm. right? You're never too small or insignificant to have the vision for another human being. You can see things they don't see, you have perspective. I also learned how to communicate what I was seeing, right? There's a, there's a curb, there's a car, there's mom, there's dad, right, duck. Uh, I, I also learned to steady myself when people would be balancing, you know, when he would be balancing on my shoulder, right? So I learned how to just steady myself. And I think that as I look through my life now and all of the, the, the pieces that we are, uh, you know, communicating and seeing and the trends we're looking for and studying myself and people are leaning on me for that support. I feel like God used that time in my life. And I, at the time, I didn't think it was extraordinary at all in terms of doing that. I wanted to do that. He was my best friend. And so spending time with him in the garden or in, you know, in the library or at the fishing pond, um, those were those were joyous times for me. It kind of reminds me of something else I'm, I'm, I'm learning in my life. If we do things out of a sense of obligation, like I have to do this, I have to do this for God, I have to do this for my family, it's a little bit like having the emergency brake on um, in your life, right? You're, you're moving down the freeway, but you're tearing up the car. I, I, I think that when we do things out of a sense of this is a joy, right? This is something I want to do. And when we can reframe even some of those more tedious things or those routine things and say, this is an opportunity to do something marvelous. Um, then, then we kind of release that break and it flows through us versus this, you know, this having to bring ourselves to something, kicking and screaming. Well, so he didn't have physical sight, but I bet he saw some things that you didn't see. What were things you learned from him that he could see in his heart and with his ears and with his mind that you couldn't see that helped shape you as a little girl? You know, he had this amazing sense of where he was mm. in the outdoors or the indoors. Um, he had this centeredness. Uh, he also saw the joy in life. I never one time heard him complain about his condition. Wow. And it was really, really tragic. He ran back into the mine to set a bigger charge because he was thinking that the charge they had set was not enough, and it would have made an unsafe condition. And so he actually ran back in to do it right. Uh, you know, so, that, so and, and, I, and, and my dad taught him to fish at, as an old man, and he would tie his own flies. And, you know, he, he, he did things by feel, right? So it, his other senses were incredibly sharp. Um, I think he taught me, even when I ride, you know, my trainer will say, uh, you know, when I'm riding Fortunato, she'll say, Stop looking with your eyes, feel, feel the movement and your body will respond accordingly. But I think sometimes we focus too much on what we can see versus, you know, that, you know, that that's you know, the whole face thing, right? That's right. That's right. See it. We can't always see it. Sometimes it's a sense and sometimes it's really trusting that sense and also trusting the process that we're in, uh, kind of moving through that, um, with a, with a, a sharper sense of what's going on behind the site. So you become, you, you graduate, you go into the banking world and you begin to climb that ladder pretty quickly, not only in a local bank. And my mom was a banker for 36 years. So y'all, y'all bankers have a special place in my heart, but she would, she would always say, I wasn't in the banking business. I was in the people business. That's what mm -hmm. she would always say. And that's why she was so good at it. But you begin to climb that ladder in the banking world. But then that, those eyes of faith begin to see things that maybe aren't right in front of you. And you leave that to go in a whole different direction. 
what was that like to leave that security of a good job? You know, you're good at it. You're being patted on the back for being good at it. And to step into that world of speaker, consultant, business expert. And what was that like? How, how was that journey for you? It was terrifying. <laughs> and it was exhilarating. You know, at the very end of my banking career, uh, and I did, I did, it was an accelerated path for me because I had a great mentor. I had a really great mentor who, who gave opportunities for me to stretch and grow and trusted me with big, important things. And, and I think that that's one of the magical things about mentoring is that when we can, when we can create a space where people are allowed to grow and try stuff, um, and then they can build that confidence. Uh, and when we trust them with big, important things, that's hugely motivating. Uh, so as a result of mentoring, it, it catapulted my career. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, some of the shine of it was coming off. I, I found myself in a, in a new situation in, in the Midwest working for a leader who wasn't a mentor, and it was a little bit dysfunctional. And, uh, you know, and, and by the way, um, I, I participated in that dysfunction, right? I learned dysfunction and vice versa. You don't have to RSVP, but I did. Uh, and, and it became a really um, miserable time. And I, as I look back on it now, it's like God had his foot on my bottom and he was just pushing me out the door. And it was really painful. It was really painful. But sometimes, you know, I maybe would have stayed there. I would have stayed there and it was comfortable and the money was right. And, you know, there was no, you know, there, there, was, there was nothing that was, pushing me out until I really felt like there's something more. But when I, when I made that leap, you know, to become a consultant, that's code for unemployed, right? <laughs> right. I'm going from <laughs> this to unemployed and then kind of starting from scratch. And, and I tried some stuff and some stuff worked really well and some stuff didn't work at all. But I, but I, but I, I did feel, I always had a sense that I was moving in the right direction. You have to, I, I say this a lot, probably, you know, the people in my life would like me to say it a little bit less, but trusting the process, mm. right? So not just, you know, trusting God is huge, but trusting the process, um, trusting every little step, even the, the steps that seem insignificant, right? Don't despise the small things because sometimes those small things are leading to the bigger and the bigger thing. So, at this point, when you begin that journey, where was faith in your life? Was faith, was that something that you began to grow in as a child? Where did your, where did your faith really begin to grow and develop in the middle of all this? I would say I grew up in the church, right? Okay. So I, I had my mom and dad's faith until I was probably, you know, then I, then I wandered away and did my own thing and, and probably became a little arrogant and a little uh, full of myself and my own, my own skills. And then life will teach you that you're not all of that. And yeah. so, so, so in my, you know, late twenties and early thirties, then it started to be my faith. It wasn't a faith that my parents had given to me. It was something that I picked up and it was a relationship that, that was precious to me. And through some really, as we all have, dark seasons and hard seasons in our lives. I, you know, I tell people, I, I cannot imagine one day without God. I don't want to go one hour without God, right? Because I'm just not, it's above my pay grade. He's better at being God than I am. So uh, then, then, then I learned uh, the secret for, for me was when people say, how do you do this? How do you write and speak? And I would say, it's not me, right? God will share some really cool stuff with you if you're paying attention and if you're willing to learn. So I feel like, uh, you know, I think one of my, one of the, one of the, the, the most, uh, I guess, marvelous or revealing experiences was I, I, I was getting ready to speak for a women's conference, a women's conference in San Antonio. And there were several thousand people that would be there. And I had been on the road a lot, traveling, speaking, traveling, speaking, and I was flat worn out. And I hadn't really been spending a lot of time with God. I hadn't, you know, I, I was, I was, I was doing the business. I was, you know, getting her done. I was meeting the deadlines. I was writing and developing content and then speaking and flying. And uh, I, I show up at this, this, this men's conference, a Christian women's conference, and I remember I was the keynoter and I, I, I always pray before I speak and and I was feeling a little nervous, a little, a little unprepared, actually. And I said, God, you know, 
I've been working really hard and I'm just going to need you to help me here. I, 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 I don't feel prepared. I feel nervous. And I will never forget. It was almost instant in my spirit. I, I hear these words, you know, I asked him to anoint my words. And he said, the anointing isn't something I just lay on you. The anointing comes from spending time with me. Mm. We haven't been doing that a lot. So why don't you take this one? Wow. I remember I stepped out on that stage and it wasn't terrible. Like he, you know, he didn't let me just crash and burn, but there wasn't the joy in it. There wasn't the organic sort of in the flow of it. It it wasn't, it wasn't moving. It was just information. And I can share information all day long, but when you add the anointing to that, then there's a fullness in it that, that, the information can't touch because there's something being delivered there that isn't just the facts. And so I determined at that point, I will never again perform alone. <laughs> I will never again <laughs> stay by myself because it is terrifying to be in front of 10 people, let alone, you know, 3000 people all by yourself. And that was the first time that I realized I'll never, I'll never take that anointing for granted. Wow. It's not a given, right? It's something, it's not something that I, you have to work for but it's something you have to participate in. And it's something that you have to prioritize and create space for. And I just know the difference in my work, the quality of it, the quantity of it, and the fullness of it when I spend time with God, even at my, when I'm, especially when I'm too busy to spend time with God. You know, and, and you are known, Dondi, as one of the foremost leadership experts, especially in the, the women's marketplace, that you are a thought leader and you are a, um, man, you're, you're a, a trailblazer, but in a lot of ways, what people may not know is there's a lot going on behind the scenes that, that you feel like a lot of what you're passing on, maybe not just from you. It, it's from, it's from a, source a little bigger than it's from a well, a little deeper than yours. Yeah. So, it's not from me. And I, and I, and I, and I'm good with that. I'm really good with that because, uh, it keeps you firmly planted with your feet on the ground in terms of who you are, right? I am nothing without God. I, uh, my capabilities are, and I have seen him, the miracles in terms of deadlines, that there's just no way I'm going to make this happen. And then, or, or the times when, when I would step in front of a crowd and, and the whole message would change. It's nothing that I prepared. It's, but it's just, and the, the, the people are weeping or they're taking massive notes. And I realize if I will show up, if I will keep those appointments and if I will really be paying attention, God wants me to, to prepare, but sometimes he'll change the script entirely. He'll flip right. the script because he knows who is there and, and what they, what they need. I, I, I think my most fulfilling, you know, the most fulfilling feedback that I get is when maybe there'll be a, a large audience and then one person will stay after in the back of the room and very emotional and will say, I just need you to know this was for me. And wow. my comment is, is, you know what? It was for you. That's and right. if, I want you to know that if you were the only person in this auditorium tonight, God still would have sent me. He still would have sent me. It was for you. And then I, I leave those moments feeling like, mission accomplished, appointment kept. And it's such a joy to be the person who gets to do that. Like God lets me do some pretty cool things, right? To see the world and to, and, and to do some pretty cool things I, that I would not have otherwise had the opportunity to do. I love that. I love that. And I, one of the things, and I, and I think every speaker and every leader gets branded. And I think we develop that brand in a, in a lot of ways as well. And I think mentoring has really become a, um, a, a pat, not only a passion of yours, but where you have really found your slot and you, mm -hmm. you really found your, okay, God's given me the space for, for talking about mentoring. Take me back a little bit. I know it began with your granddad. You had an incredible mentor in the banking industry. Where did this whole thought begin to develop of this is why mentoring is so important and why everyone needs to be a mentor and needs mentored? Talk, talk to me a little bit about that journey. You know, it was, a, it was an interesting conversation that I had with uh, my strategic partner. We were thinking about, you know, just in the speaking business, 
what were some of the topics that were missing out there in the marketplace? Like what were the, you can have the hot topics like emotional intelligence and there's, you know, communication and, and branding. And there's, there's always the hot topics that people are, are, are seeking more information around. But as I looked at it, I said, you know, I, I think, uh, I think that in the marketplace, there's a huge gap in terms of, of, mentoring. I don't think people are getting mentored. I don't think we really understand what mentoring really means. And a lot of organizations have mentoring programs, but I think mentoring is a culture. Mm. I don't think it's a program. Like, and, and maybe it starts out at the programish level, right? Where we have put some structure around it and some expectations to it. Maybe we provide some, some skills, training, that kind of thing. Uh, in that way, maybe it's a, a mentoring program. But if you do it right, and if you wrap community around it, which I think is the secret sauce in mentoring, if you can wrap community around that and you can start to create this dialogue around how are you growing, uh, you know, what, are, what, what, what meaningful experiences are you creating? Because sometimes I think that mentoring is relegated to it looks more like parenting. Mm. You know, when I mentor people, I will tell them, I am not your mama. <laughs> this is not a rescue mission. This is not therapy. I am not Dr. Gandhi, right? Uh, and, and it's not doing lunch. Mentoring is rolling up your sleeves and developing meaningful experiences. So, for example, you know, one one mentoring partnership a couple of years ago, uh, the, the the protege wanted to learn leadership, and she wanted to learn how to. Uh, she wanted to learn the financial acumen things, and she also wanted to learn how to communicate or influence, be more compelling. And so I said, well, what is the meaningful experience that you could create that would pull all of those together? And what they came up with was just marvelous. She uh, hosted a gala event for a, a women's shelter in Atlanta, uh, and she developed the whole project from scratch, from ground zero. Uh, she managed all of the money of that. She managed, you know, getting champions for it. She managed the, the you know, the, the emceeing of the uh, the event. So she took those goals and she said, how could I create uh, a, a meaningful experience that would allow me to try some things and to develop some things and uh, and, and push myself into those those spaces. And I think what her, her experience really reinforces is that. In the wake of the work that you do in your mentoring work, there should be value left behind. Mm. So it's just what you learn and what you discover. And it's not just the brand that you build or the communication skills that you hone and polish. It's what is the value that you created with that? And if you can't articulate the value, then it was probably just a learning experience, not a mentoring experience, because I think there's got to be value left behind in the wake of it. What ta- what does it take to be a great mentor? What does it? What are the skill sets needed? Because I think a lot of leaders listen in. They go, "I really want to be a great mentor." What are some of the key skill sets for somebody to be one? Oh, I think that's a great question. Uh, first and foremost, your story matters, right? Mm-hmm. Thinking about maybe even collecting some of your stories. What have you learned the hard way, <laughs> right? What is the biggest mistake that you ever made? Protégés really love those stories. They learn so much from them. What are you learning right now? How are you pushing yourself into new spaces? I think that the the key for, if there was one key skill, it would be the ability to ask bigger, better questions. And not to think your job as a a mentor is to have all the answers um, or to create a clone of you. Your job is to help facilitate self-discovery. And you do that by asking big questions. And I think that sometimes mentors really wrestle with that. They tell me um, that they have this, this, this telling reflex. And I do too. I'm a fixer. If somebody comes to me and says, here's where it hurts, my first, my first gut level reaction might be to say, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to read this book. You're going to journal for five days, right? I mean, I'm going to give them an action plan because it's my help. And what I'm learning is to sit back and ask bigger questions. When is that happening? How often is that happening? What have you tried? What are you willing to try? You know, where, where, where are the, the spaces in this that just feel out of reach for you? What would it look like if you were doing this well? And what value would you create? What would it mean for you? Why do you want to work on that? And you'll just see the, the answers kind of flow into the situation. So I think the ability to uh, self-awareness, mm-hmm. uh, 
and I, and I think then, then other awareness, those are the two things, being able to facilitate that self-discovery and trusting the process, letting things get a little messy sometimes, right? Yeah. Go try some stuff and sometimes stuff isn't going to work so great. And I think, uh, I think that many times protégés will say, I learned from some of the things that didn't work. I learned more from that than from the shining, you know, the bright, shiny successes that were created. Is there is there a certain time frame? Is it a once a week, once a month, every other week? What what kind of time frame do you usually put on a relationship like that? It's interesting that you ask that because in the corporate world, when we design, they design mentoring communities for the Fortune 50, and so typically there's some tools that that we've developed for that that provide some structure with a lot of flexibility to make it your own and to bring yourself to it. But there is some structure, so it's not just as we float. We float in for coffee, right? There, there, there's a contract and a formal mentoring process, and those those engagements typically in, in our world, in our communities, run for six months. Uh, but what's really interesting about that, and there, and and there, there's up to three big stretch goals they're working on, three uh, three objectives that they really want to focus on during that time, and then they design these meaningful experiences. What happens most often is at the end of the in the end of the engagement when we're celebrating those successes, they will tell us we're not done. You know, this part might be done, but we're not done. And maybe the frequency will change uh, in terms of how often we get together. But a relationship has most typically been formed that that will be there forever and forever and forever. Uh, so in terms of frequency, I usually advise mentoring partnerships when you're first getting started to meet um, more often. And so building trust, building that relationship, figuring out what do we want to work on? How are we going to work on that? What are some of our ground rules? Um, how are we going to do business with each other? And then, then as you build out that action plan, then you would meet as often as you need to in order to achieve those goals. So for some, some people, it's twice a month. For some people, it's every single week. I've known mentoring partnerships that meet twice a week. Right, because they have a really, uh, a really aggressive plan that they're working on. I, I think the other thing too is just that the whole idea of designing meaningful experiences. It's once you figure out what you want to, what you want to accomplish, where can you plug yourself into work that's already going on? You know, special projects or assignments. Where can you, where can you uh, either initiate something or, uh, or hook on to something that's already happening. And the other thing that I think is brilliant, and I, I learned this from a, a mentoring partnership, is to scan your environment, scan your calendar, and ask yourself, uh, with the work that's already on my plate, in, 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 within my reach, what, where are my opportunities to practice these skills, to show up and be that, to, you know, to be strategic or to be innovative? What would that look like in these situations so you can build mentoring into the work that's already going on? Is there ever a point you reach in leadership you don't need a mentor? Is there is there ever a time that you go, okay, I've arrived, I figured all this out, I don't need someone coaching me, mentoring me, pouring into me? Do you ever reach that in business or or in any leadership work at all? You might think that for five minutes <laughs> <laughs> before you fall off the cliff. I, you know, and I think that's another thing you you asked earlier. What 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 was the catalyst for this whole mentoring conversation? The higher you go, so so what I've noticed is um, the higher you go. Where where do where do the you know where's the C suite? Where are they? Where where is the president? Where is the the CFO? Where where do those people go when things feel like they're coming apart? You know, I I think we all need that. We all need that voice. We all need that 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 sounding board. Uh, I remember years ago reading a book, and I cannot for the life of me remember what the book was, but it was talking about um, this whole idea of, uh, you know, confidence and 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 how how we show up. And this research, this this research had interviewed really high level um, folks and running running big huge companies. And one of the quotes that just set me back in my chair was this: the CEO said, "Every day I drive to work." And I wonder if today will be the day that everyone figures out, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> he was like a pretender. It's a little bit of that imposter. He felt, um, he felt that he wasn't as, he looked equipped. He looked wise. He looked in, in, in charge. He looked at all of the things that he was supposed, but he wasn't feeling any of those things. 
And so I, I remember thinking, you know, isn't that interesting? Where does he go? Where does he go to to gain that confidence and to sort those pieces out? I think that we all should have mentors. I think we should all be mentors. And in organizations that really believe that, what you'll find is people will be protégés first, but then they learn from the process how to be mentors. And one of my favorite examples was a, a, a protégé. Uh, his mentor had taken him through a, a series of questions because he wanted to work on his leadership capabilities. And there was two or three questions that his mentor had asked him to be thinking about. So like, create a vision. What does that mean to you? What does the leader mean to you? And he said back in his work area, there was a colleague that just seemed to be kind of like floating along, but not really satisfied and not really um, engaged. And so he said, I took him to lunch and I said, I want to share with you these questions that my mentor shared with me. And it said, it just sparked something in him. So, you know, the thing, and, and it, changed, it changed the whole dynamic. That, that young man is now engaged and really doing well. I think he's received a promotion. But what, what that taught me was that sometimes what we're learning through a mentoring process isn't just for us, mm. right? It isn't just for us. It's supposed to flow through us and to others. It's not something we're supposed to just get and hang on to, this bright, shiny thing that I get. Um, it's that where is my opportunity then to teach that and to, 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 to pay that forward, if you will. You know, I was listening to you talk uh, in another podcast I was listening in on, and you talked about the beginning of your speaking, you're, you're getting into that world and somebody connected you with Mark Sanborn and you were in an airport and you got time with him on the phone. You said he didn't even remember the conversation, but it etched you forever. And he's, He's pouring into you, giving you the secret sauce. He's telling oh. you all the stuff. And I remember you saying, you said, I'm going to, uh, you know, this could hurt you one day. I'm going to be, I want to be good at this. This could hurt you. And what was his response to you, Dondi? So funny. I said to him, he was the guy, he was in the airport. I And I was this naive person just dialing a phone, not even knowing who I was talking to. Someone said, you should talk to Mark Sambo. And I'm like, okay. I, you know, I, I, I didn't even know who he was. I didn't have this concept of Mark Sambo. And so he spent uh, a long time with me. And, and when I said to him, I don't know why you would share all this with me because I'm not there yet, but I'm going to be really good at this and I'm going to be your competitor. And he just started laughing. He said, you know what, Gandhi, I can produce it faster than you can consume it. <laughs> wow. That is crazy. I, I, I asked him, you know, do you remember that? And he said, I don't remember. But the one thing he did, I had asked him, how, how can I compensate you for this, this? And he said, the thing I will ask of you, the only thing I will ask of you is that when someone comes to you and they're, and, and they're looking for some advice or some counsel, that you'll stop and you'll take the call. And I have kept that promise hundreds of times. Right. And I always remember, I remember that's all he asked for there. I just want you to do the same for someone else that will, that will come to you someday uh, for advice and counsel. Well, today's a perfect example because you're paying it back by talking to a goober in Atlanta. And so I really <laughs> appreciate it because there's other people that are going to take your experiences and they, they've heard you, they've read you, but when they hear you in a context like this, it's like peeling back the curtains a little bit and you go, Oh, okay. I didn't know that part or, okay. So that's where it came from. You know, I've listened to you and you and Bob Berg talk so much about culture and leadership, excellence. When you walk into corporate gatherings, when you walk into companies, when you walk in to even churches, how quickly do you sense excellence and how quickly do you pick up on and you sniff around and go, all right, there's a lot going on good behind the scenes or there's a lot going on bad behind the scenes. Speak to that a little bit. It's instant. It's instantly. Mm. You can feel the culture and uh, some cultures have a really good vibe to them. There's a good energy. There's a, and when I, when I, when I walk into those cultures, usually what there's an excitement about getting better and growing and there's collaboration and there's not a lot of ego involved. Uh, uh, recently, I was I, I was I was speaking in, in in Austin, and I walked into the room. There was I don't know maybe 150 people with this organization, and I had set my uh, my 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 notebook down on a back table, right, just kind of waiting to be introduced. I was the keynoter, 
And this woman said to me, she leaned over and said to me, um, excuse me, we're saving those spaces. You can't put your stuff there. And I looked at her and I smiled and I said, thank you very much. And I, and I, as I walked to the front of the room and I turned back and I winked at her when they introduced me and she was like, you know, (laughs) your first response when someone new, like how you treat the new person, how you, you know, how, I I, I think communication is not about us at all. It's about how people feel when they're with Mm us, how people feel when they leave us. And, what they do when they leave us. And sometimes we make it all about ourselves. And the cultures that I think are excellent, they're, 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 they, they really do, they have what I would call at, at an organizational level, emotional intelligence. They're really focused on what's out there. They're focused on the customer experience, designing an experience that's just world-class. But they're also trying to design an experience for employees that is world-class. How do we make this place the best place on earth to do business? You know, I listened to you tell a story, and I I believe it was Bob. It may have been with somebody else, but you were talking about um, people owning excellence and people getting down in a great culture. I know you guys made the statement. I, I wrote it down this morning. Our culture be revealed with how we deploy our disciplines. And that was something you and Bob said together. That's a great quote. And you, and you told the story of a supermarket that was getting rid of their flowers at the end of the day, and they challenged their employees to excellence. And a little girl did something unique with those flowers. Would you mind sharing that story a little bit with our audience? Yeah, I this, love that. It was this, the, what, this grabbed me. This did me too. I, I believe that the consultant was Barbara Glass who had gone into that grocery store and she had, she had, they were working on uh, world-class service. And, and so they, they had asked every employee to think of what's one thing you could do, not what could your manager do or marketing, what could you do to, to deliver an elegant customer experience. And so they all went out and they all came back. And that was one of the ideas. The young woman who I think she was putting herself through school uh, working in the floral department at night. And she said, well, every Thursday night, uh, one of my tasks is to you know, throw away the old flowers because new flowers will come in overnight and we need room for the inventory, but I'm not going to throw the flowers out anymore. I'm going to pass them out and I'm going to thank people for shopping here. Uh, so she was taking something that a resource that was being wasted and then she was turning that into goodwill uh, what I love about that is not just the creativity, but it does show you something we talked about at the very at the very beginning, and that that she saw something that her manager might not have seen. It takes the person who's throwing the That's flowers right. to see that. Um, and, and, and the other part of that story that I really love is the idea of owning your own excellence. It's not mm. sometimes we're, we're waiting. I think that's the, you know, the, I, I do a lot of work around accountability and we have really ruined that word because we, even if you look in the dictionary, the word is that which can be explained, right? So mm-hmm. we ask people, as long as you can explain your lack of results, you don't have to have any. That's ridiculous. <laughs> results are not the same thing. But to me, the truest definition of accountability is what can you do? Mm. Can you do? Because that's really all that's required of us is to just keep asking, what can I do? And sometimes, and I really, I hope this is an encouragement to people who hear it. Sometimes in the face of your obstacles or circumstances, uh, the giants in your land, if you will, sometimes what you can do might feel really tiny. It might Mm. feel small. Do it anyway. Do that thing. And then the next thing will be revealed to you and the next and the next and the next. And I think sometimes we're waiting for the big, gigantic revelation, right? The big answer. Uh, And sometimes maybe the answer comes in the small thing. And if you can be faithful with that small step, right, then the next step will be revealed to you. But I think sometimes we're sitting there waiting for the big answer to come, but we haven't been faithful to the small step that's right in front of us. You've had some highs, and I'm sure in leadership, you've had some adversity and you've had some things strike you. What are things that have gotten you through those seasons? What are the things that you say, if I could share something with one person listening today and they got this, if they're walking through that season of adversity, what would you tell them? I would say uh, my greatest season of adversity was when I was an executive working in a complete leadership vacuum. And I felt like my confidence was just being stripped off of me like skin. I didn't feel valued. I didn't feel uh, utilized. I I, I, I worked for someone who really valued the spreadsheets and the numbers. And I was the 
salesperson, right? I was in charge of sales and motivation and rallies, and I felt uh, like the odd person out. And uh, what I learned through that process was, and it was a very painful time, but what I learned is that if you, if you wait, I, I kept waiting for the leader to lead. I kept waiting for leadership to happen. Uh, I had to fill that gap with personal leadership. But I kind of excused myself from the table. I kind of said, well, I, I can't be effective because he's not effective. And what I learned is if you wait for another person to be effective so that you can be effective, it will be too late. Mm-hmm. It will be too late. You have to find your own effectiveness. You have to find a way. And I, I think the questions that we ask also will to some degree determine the course, the trajectory. I was asking questions like, who picked this fool? Like, how do you get to be the president of a banking business with this skill set? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and he's such a loser. Who picked this loser? I should have been asking questions like, how can I partner more effectively with this guy? How can I make him look better than he is? How can I help him succeed? I, I wish that I would have been more like, what was the story in the Bible? Was it Noah that got drunk? Somebody got drunk. Yeah, it was Noah. Yeah, and, at the end, of, at the end of the forty, at the end of all that work. Yeah. yeah. And but I might, I, I might have this wrong, but some of, one of the sons was opening the curtain and kind of you know making it public, and then another son closed the curtain. Mm. Do I have that right? Right. I think so, so yeah. Yep. So the point is, is I wish that I would have been the second son. I mm-hmm. wish that I would have not been so keen to expose that, um, you know, the, those flaws in leadership because he wasn't a good leader and he was terrified. Um, but I look back on it now and I wish I would have closed that curtain. I wish I would have prayed more about how do I help this person be more successful? How do I make it unnecessary for him to be threatened by me? How, how do I partner with him? I wasn't mature enough to ask those questions. And it was a really dark time in my life. And when I left there, I left there uh, sort of uh, comforting myself with his flaws. And it wasn't until much later that I grew up and realized that whole, yes, it was dysfunctional, but dysfunction invites dysfunction. You don't have to RSVP. And I did. I dressed for it. I went all the way to that party. Yeah. And we can excuse it. And I love that because it's so easy to go, well, I'm trying to be a good leader. They're a brutal leader. And that could be church, sports, business, wherever it is, they're a brutal leader. I'm trying to be a good leader. So I'm going to distance myself. And the lesson learned is try to be the best you can be where God has put you for the season and pray you don't have to stay there forever. Right. I mean, pray that you don't have to, we don't, we don't want you to have to live there for long, but while you're there, make the most of it. What's better about you today because of that season? What's you made know, you better? That, that's the perfect follow-up question. Cause I was going to say there was purpose in that. If I would have reframed that and, and asked myself, what is God trying to show me? What is God trying to rub off or polish? What are some of the sharp edges that have to go? What is the insight that he's trying to give me? I just, I, 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 I got into that push, right, and push back, very confrontational, very, um, you know, it was, it was a conflictive relationship. I wish that uh, what I learned is to ask myself, what is God trying to show me in this time? What is he, what is he asking me to do? And here's the other thing. Even if it's just God asking me, would I be willing to just do it for him? Wow. Maybe it's not about me at all. Maybe it's about what this other person is trying, he's trying to show someone else. Maybe he has something up his God's sleeves. I don't know. But, but if, I, if God said, it's not about you at all, will you do it anyway? My answer would be yes. I'll do it. I'll do it anyway. You know, I think, I think it's not about us. Sometimes he's, you know, he's got a lot going on. <laughs> well, you know, it's so good. And I love that statement, Dondi. It's not about us. If, if every person really grasped that and they said, okay, God left me here. It, it, if salvation was the only goal, he would have taken you home the minute you met him. But yeah. he left you here, right? So he left you here for a reason. It's not about you. It is about other people. It's about us using our lives to mentor, bless, disciple, pour into, make other people's lives better. What would change about a person 
if they got that. I'm talking not heard it, recognized it here in their brain, but got it down in their heart. What would change about somebody if they got it wasn't about them? Oh, I think you I think you move through those situations with completely different eyes, mm. right? Relax in the process. And it's sometimes it's counterintuitive to relax in the in the process. You know, I, I ride this horse and and as I as we go into greater and greater, more complex gates and you know, sometimes I'm terrified. And one of the things I'm learning in the canter, for example, my trainer will say, You just gotta sit back and relax. You gotta sit back and relax and just and just go. Uh, everything in me wants to squeeze that horse like a toothpaste, right? And, and lean forward and hold on tight. And she's saying, sit back, let go, give him his head, stop balancing on his mouth, just let go. Mm-hmm. And when I can do that, when I can just go, it is the most wonderful, exhilarating ride that you'll ever have. But when we're all clutched up, right? And I also think that when we get so all up in our own head about what we're feeling and what it means to us and this isn't fair and we do all of, you know, we do all of that stuff, we probably miss the bigger assignment. We probably miss the bigger assignment. We probably, I think in that, in that situation, I, 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 I learned a lot, but I, I, if I were to do it again, I would have, I would accept the assignment with different eyes, with different, with, with different motives. And I also would have been looking for God inside of it. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And what are you asking for? from me? What do you want me to do? What is the role that I play? But I made it so much about me that I wasn't, um, I wasn't probably as useful to God in that situation. Why do you feel like God put you here? Why do you feel like God created Dondi? This lady who's on platforms, uh, people are reading her books, they're listening to her on podcasts, they're uh, reading journals that are written about you and articles that are written about you. You step back out of it. You are Dondi. You're you're in the middle of this this crazy whirlwind of life and success and what the earth would what the world would say is success. Why do you think God? Why do you think God put you here on this planet? What would you say? I feel a little bit like Moses, the stutterer. Right? Mm. I do sometimes. Sometimes I like you picked me, and I don't know why you picked me. I'm deeply flawed. <laughs> Uh, not always confident, right? Uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes uh, not even feeling very effective. Uh, it's really interesting because I, I, it, the, the first thing that comes to mind is something I wrote about in my second book, and it, it's that I want to keep um, all of my appointments with hope. Mm. I, I, I believe that the world is desperately looking for hope. And I want to keep those appointments so that people feel, um, in, in, even in the darkest moments. I, I often say that to, to audiences when I'm speaking, um, I want you to imagine your darkest moment. Uh, you, you can't see out of it, right? That, the hole is deep. You're, you're in a sunken place. I, I want you to just imagine what would a hopeful person do. <laughs> and then I want you to go do that. You don't even have to be the hopeful person. Just go do the stuff a hopeful person would do. Because if you will do that, the hope will arise. The, the hope will arise. I also think, um, so my vision would be that we live life more fully, that we actually experience life and not just go through the motions of life, that people will find deep in the marketplace, in our jobs that we would find deep satisfaction and joy and meaning in the work that we do, whatever the work is, right? That there would be an excellence to it, but there would also be this joy inside of it. I think there's a huge chunk of humanity that are doing hard time in job jail, right? They're, they're, you know, that's not what work, the work of our hands is supposed to create value that, that is satisfying, uh, so I think, I think, you know, my, my, my purpose, right. Is that message that says, if you will just increase your value, opportunity will always arrive. You don't have to worry about uh, where your opportunities are going to come from. The opportunity is starting her car. The moment that you begin to focus on driving more value that flows through you, not just to you. And that, that as, you, as it flows through you, um, your opportunities can be amazing, right? But you can author and design a path that is really uniquely your own. Because I think that we're all, you know, in God's eyes, we're all very unique. 
we all have a purpose. We all have, we all, uh, all have a mission, but I don't think everybody, I think there will be a lot of people that go through their entire lives and never re realize what that is. That's tragic to me that you would never really figure out what is my calling? What is destiny? What am I here for? So when you say, what are you here for? To help people figure out what they're here for. <laughs> Man, I hope you enjoyed that time with Dondi. What an amazing leader. You know, it's so amazing. There are so many people out there, not only that are making a difference in the leadership space, but they're making a difference for the Lord. You know, Dondi is that picture of someone whose heart drives who she is. And her faith was just so real. And it was just such a part of her leadership. I loved her mentoring. And I loved her thoughts on mentoring and why she is so intentional in those relationships and the difference that those relationships are making in others' lives. Dondi was a absolute pleasure. And it's been so fun to follow her on Twitter and to follow her website and just a, just a neat glimpse into a great leader and a glimpse into their heart. Dondi is world-class. There's no doubt about that. And I'm so thankful our paths were able to connect and our paths were able to uh, cross because I was able to share our conversation with you. Well, our next episode, episode 40, is going to be someone that you're really going to enjoy. Her name is Patty Gasso. She is the softball coach at the University of Oklahoma, and she is one that's just out there uh, being a record setter in so many ways, not only winning national championships, but making a difference on and off the field with her players. If you're a coach, you're in the world of athletics, she is someone you probably know who she is, but you're better going to know who she is by the time our conversation is done. So I hope you'll take a chance, share this with a friend. If you'll do me a favor, and I know we mention this in every episode, but if you'll take a second, go to iTunes, leave a review. It helps push us up in the listening category. And I, my hope and prayers, others find their way here so they can also learn how to be a leader in the space and place that God has put them. Once again, thanks for listening in and go and make a difference and go be the leader that God created you to be. Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.